You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I was an engineer. I technically, I guess, am still a civil engineer. And when I was being taught how to do this kind of work, I was told, build the roads wide, build them straight, build them flat. It took a lot of time to break me of that habit, but I am well broken. Many of my profession are not well broken. I came across a research paper written by Dr. Shima Hamidi from the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's agreed to come on our podcast and chat about it. I think she might say, build them wide, build them flat, build them straight. Nope, no thanks. Shima, Dr. Hamidi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for having me. And my short answer is, for most places, no. What you mentioned is just decades of planning for streets and street design mindsets that you got to be forgivable. You got to be forgivable for giving design paradigm for a driver's error. These kind of streets that are wide, they are flat, there's not many objectives on the street. You don't see many pedestrians or cyclists or no trees, uh, setbacks are, are far enough from the actual space. That makes streets safe because that minimizes the consequences of driver's error, which in my new study, we are talking about the fact that it could be quite opposite. It could be quite the <laughs> contrast of what this paradigm talks about. Let's dig into that because you uh, at John Hopkins have published this research paper and it really cuts to kind of the core assumptions of the civil engineering profession in traffic design, which is the way we make things safer. You call this the conventional design approach. You mentioned forgiving design. I was taught forgiving design. I know a lot of the young civil engineers today are just taught you know, design. This is the way we do it. Focusing on the driver, if we make lanes wider, it is somehow safer. You know, for me, that's been the paradigm that I've been told. The, the more you can widen things out and give more room, the safer it is for drivers. Is that true or not? Here's the thing, Chuck. So the main reason behind safety numbers is speed. Uh, and higher speeds means more crashes and, and more severe crashes. That forgiving street design paradigm or the mindset it just gives drivers the sense of false sense of safety is that it's okay if you have an error the environment is going to be forgiving you are not going to see a crash happening or a severe crash happening it means that the driver gets this sense of safety or false sense of safety and risk from the environment they tend to speed up and that speed is really the cause of most crashes and really terrible, shocking crash numbers and fatality numbers that we see here in the US. That's really the outcome of that paradigm, the outcome of that thinking that you got to think about the most vulnerable users of the streets. If you want to really move toward net zero safety and, and, and net zero crashes, 
you got to think about pedestrian and cyclists. And if the street is safe for them, if you design the street in a way that they feel safe using the street, then that's safe for everyone, including drivers. Let me drill down on this a little bit because there's a nuance in driver behavior that I feel like civil engineers grasp, but don't evenly apply. The insight is this, and I think you alluded to this, but I want to give you a chance to state it in a deeper way. Drivers are taking the cues on how fast they should drive from the design of the roadway. The design of the roadway tells the drivers, here's what's safe, almost in the absence of any other enforcement mechanism. So we can have a speed limit sign up or a drive whatever sign up, and people will get used to that and ignore it. How should listeners of this podcast or people who care about street safety, road safety, how should they think about the agency that the driver has and the driver's behavior in terms of the design? You just explained it beautifully. That's the point. The fact that the forgiving design paradigm says that, no, it's us. We uh, can control the, the speed through posted speed limits, for example. But then the point is you have to have 24-7 law enforcement in place to enforce that speed. If the environment just gives the driver the sense that you can go faster and they are going to go faster, they are going to go faster than speed limit if there is no law enforcement or if they know that there is no law enforcement in place, the environment defines the speed that the drivers feel safe and feel comfortable to drive. And that really is by the way we are designing our streets. Lane widths, number of lanes, traffic calming uh, devices, even the the pedestrian volumes and, and cyclist volume, like how busy is the street, tree coverage, building setbacks, all of these elements of streets defines what we call the operational speed of the street, which is very different from speed limit. And that has been tested uh, experimentally by many studies that found that even if you keep everything else in the street the same and just reduce lane widths from 11 to 10 feet, then you will see that the, the speed of the street is reducing by three to four miles per hour, regardless of speed limit. So that's really what defines the sense that drivers get from the street and how much they feel risk and how much they feel safe to go faster really defines their actual speed, regardless of posted speed limit. So I hear you saying that a narrowing of lanes sends a different signal to the driver. The driver feels that differently And you're suggesting, and I think your research is suggesting, they slow down as a result, just by narrowing the lane widths. Is that one of the conclusions of your report? For arterial streets. Uh, So we just looked at arterial streets, uh, principal arterials, and major collectors, not highways or freeways. There might be different dynamics there. But for this type of streets, yes, that's the point. We found that in 10-foot or 9-foot lane streets, actually tend to not be significantly different in terms of number of crashes from 12 or 11. And in some cases, like in the speed limit of class of 30 to 35 miles per hour, actually those streets with wider lanes tend to be more dangerous, having higher number of crashes. And again, the key to this finding is looking at speed. 
drivers tend to drive at higher speeds in those streets, regardless of posted speed limits. You're talking about arterials. And I think for our for our listeners, you know, we at Strong Towns tend to call these places strodes, this like street road hybrid. I don't know if you've heard that term or not. You're smiling a little bit. That's that's our term for these places that are not quite roads where you're not really driving fast and they're not quite streets where you're not quite building a place. Why did you pick arterials? What What is it about arterials that drew your interest for this study? Well, I think arterials are the street types that are most likely to be used by pedestrian and cyclists. So they are not highways uh, or freeways. So they are not the overall uh, speed of the street street is not that high, that'd be unsafe for pedestrian and cyclists, and they are not too local too. Uh, so you will see particularly in busier part of the cities or towns or, or in downtown areas, business districts, or even commercial areas, you will see mostly these streets, regardless of if they have a, a bike lane or not, are being used by cyclists, are being used by pedestrians. And so the other point of doing this study was that can we make these type of street safer for cyclists and pedestrians? What about if we find that these streets are, are too wide or the lanes are too wide, just taking one foot from each lane, reducing 12 to 11 or 10, and use that extra space to add a bike lane or a wider sidewalk. And I think that the street types that would most likely benefit from these changes would be arterials and major collectors. Sure, sure. You spent some time talking to Ashto. Ashto is one of these organizations that I've I've interacted with a lot. Let me make sure that I get for our, our listeners who don't know Ashto, the American Association of State Highway Transportation Officials, I think is the full thing. These are Highway builders, they've come up with the the green book is what we call it in the business that kind of lays out all the standards. You come at this from a public health standpoint, public health being public well-being, fatality rates, traumatic injury rates. They tend to come at it from a traffic flow and uh, system management kind of standpoint. Was there any kind of culture gap there in your conversations with them? And how was that interaction? I find them to be a, a group that is ridiculously professional, but in a very narrow niche. How did you find interacting with them? What, what did you learn from Ashto? First of all, by training, I'm not a public health expert. I'm a transportation planner. So I'm, ah. I'm not an engineer, and but but I, I've spent uh, my, my professional life doing research on transportation and safety and, you know, vehicle miles traveled and pedestrians and uh, just, just general travel behavior of individuals so you know, and households. You know this language well. So I've been, I've been looking at these issues for years, again, from a planner's perspective, not an engineer. We did a, a survey of Ashton members, and that was a, a written survey. We were looking at really how they approach lane widths, what, what they think of lane widths, what they think of ways to reduce lane widths in places that we think they should. And what we found, that was a national survey. We reached out to almost all Ashton members, and I think we... We got a good response rate. I think we got like, it was higher than 50%. I can't remember. 
But most ASHTO members tend to go or prefer to go with uh, with the ASHTO standard, the Green Book, the Bible, uh, which is the Bible, is yep. talk, the Bible, which, which is talking uh-huh. about the the lane widths of the minimum lane widths of eleven to twelve for arterials and highways as a general standard. They told us like if we we prefer to go with this, and if we want to do a narrower lane, we prefer to go through an exception process, which is not an easy process. In most cases, there's there's a lot of paperwork and analysis that needs to be done. And we found that cases of exception in most states is, is rare. You will not find many cases of reduction in lane width through the exception process. So it's on the paper is there. But really not much application of that. However, I should mention that we interviewed with a few state DOT officials and, uh, and who were also ASHTO members, and they told us that they were thinking about changes in approach. An example of that is Florida, Florida DOT. They told us that they are revising their guideline and standards. They've already done that. And they are actually asking their traffic engineers to, instead of going with wider lanes and trying to justify why it should be narrower to exception, which is the case in most places, they do the opposite. They are going toward this approach that we should go with narrow lanes whenever we can and ask our traffic engineers to justify why it should be wider, which is an absolute change in paradigm. And we were so happy to to see examples like these. And I think eventually we'll see more and more ASHTO members and DOTs thinking about multimodal street design and really safety for all. To me, that was the most eye-popping or or headline-catching recommendation of this report was that we just default to wide lanes. And it is a battle. It's a struggle to narrow them. You kind of have this high standard of burden that you have to cross. You're saying, do the opposite. The research shows the narrower lanes are safer. Start with the narrow lanes and then demonstrate that you need to make them wider. What kind of process would you envision for doing that? What would be the reasons you would make the lane wider then? That's a good question, Chuck. I would add one thing to what you just mentioned is that in the context, look at the context. We are not recommending that lanes should be narrow everywhere. There should be a difference between a street that is in downtown area versus a street that is in suburban areas or in a rural setting. There is a difference between this, even though everything else is the same for these three streets, just the context matters. And so in the context that you see that there's a lot of potentials for pedestrian and cyclist activities, you see a lot of activities going on on each side of streets. For example, in downtown areas, then definitely there you should come up with different standards than rural setting. And in this, this setting, narrower lanes tend to be safer. I hate to interrupt you. I just feel like you said something that is so mind-numbingly obvious to every non-engineer. Like, you're an engineer. Use your brain. Look at the context. Change things up based on the context you're in. Actually engineer things. 
why is this so obvious to a transportation planner? And I, I've got a planning degree too. I, this is very obvious. Why is it so hard for engineers applying AASHTO Green Book standards to do this? Why is this so difficult? How do we get to the point where we need your study, which we need, but why hasn't this been corrected years and years ago? I think it's just because I think if you really want to look at it and make changes foundationally, you got to look at the AASHTO book because the AASHTO book doesn't look at context. You know, the AASHTO book is just looking at, okay, with this traffic volume, with, uh, you know, this setup, you got to have 11 to 12 lanes and that those would work. There is nowhere that it talks about, look at context. And to the extent to which the context has been, the, the, you know, the case of in, in conversations really depends on individual state departments of transportation and cities. Some cities and states have been more proactive than others and some not. <laughs> I, I want to refer again to our conversation with Florida Beauty that was just telling us if we go to a traffic engineer and, and asks, okay, this street has a a 12 foot lanes, let's narrow it to 10, they are going to freak out. Um, yes. <laughs> they, they are going to just say, like, what are you talking about? But if we just tell them that this street is in downtown areas, they say, oh, okay, let's let's look at it. Like they are way more receptive. The direction of conversation changes when we are talking about the context. And I think if we see more and more states are are coming up with this context-sensitive design paradigm that we should talk about street design in the context of that specific street, you will see more context-appropriate design. I would say, again, not everywhere narrow, but whenever we need narrow lanes, we'll have narrow lanes. Whenever we need wider lanes, maybe maybe for freeways, we definitely don't want to have narrow lanes and you know add to the conflict of cars on that speed level. Then we'll have wider lanes, but context matters. And again, that's, that's again in a, sh- a shifting paradigm that we'd see more states are receptive to doing so uh, than what we had before. This is a very good report. It's very well written. You're a, a very good researcher and you don't you know, go to lengths to pick fights with people. So <laughs> I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it did seem like you had a little bit of a, I'll just say disappointment with the context sensitive design standards that have been put together and maybe not with the standards themselves, but with their their overall implementation. It feels like there are people who have tried to solve this or come up with alternate approaches, but they really have not taken. What has happened and why do you think we struggle with this so mightily? The problem is that in that the team of engineers that, you know, so planners and engineers involved in the process of street design at some point at a time, but not simultaneously. So when we need them to sit down together and talk <laughs> about, you know, one yes. of them brings the engineering <laughs> aspects of street design, the other brings the context and really bring everything to all these pieces together to be able to paint at what that street looks like and safety on that street and traffic volume, everything looks like we don't have that. And so most often we see they are involved at different phases of a street design. 
And at the point that we are finalizing the decision on lane widths, on number of lanes, on those functional characteristics of street, street it's mostly done by engineers, almost always. Uh, which is which is you know is the process that really doesn't in most cases doesn't um, take into account the context of that street. Let me ask you a couple questions about that in particular. It feels like there are technical things that engineers need to do, right? There's there there are things that engineers are qualified to do that planners are not qualified to do. I would say scope out where the drainage is going to go and how it flows and the size of the pipes that would handle that drainage, the the size of the curbs that are needed to contain it. I think things like the depth of the asphalt is something that a technical person has certain expertise that say a planner wouldn't have. Do you consider lane width? And let me just say the purpose of the design or the the primary things we're trying to accomplish, like, is this about pedestrian flow and building a place and having investment, or is this about moving vehicles quickly? Is that a technical decision or is that a non-technical decision? In other words, is that something that engineers should not make on their own, but should be more of a collaborative process? I believe so. I think that the design of the street, it's just more than those functional characteristics that are, are engineering in nature. It really is part of the larger context of the neighborhood and what's going on in each side of you know in each side of the street and what what's going on in terms of pedestrian flow in terms of cyclist flow and volume in terms of the overall traffic flow i think maybe a more effective process would be to come up with the desired speed the actual speed that we want the street to have uh, regardless of speed limit, what do we want the actual speed of the street to be? And then when we have that in mind, then looking at different elements. And that would be, again, where the planners could come into the play, coming up with different elements. Maybe those are traffic calming devices. Maybe those are some characteristics of streets like lane widths or number of lanes. Maybe those are are just including a bike lane or not. Like everything that could help to achieve that speed, regardless of post-speed limit. And that is a collaboration. It's an engineering planning process. The two would work together to achieve that speed. And that would be then, again, something that you don't depend on post-speed limit. Uh, You just know that these elements of the street are going to give this message to drivers to collectively come on average, you know, have this speed and traffic flow on the street. I think that would be a much more effective process. So let me ask you this. This wasn't in your report. I'm very interested, you know, with your background in in your thoughts on this. Let's say that I'm a city council member or I'm a local decision maker. I'm a county board member or I'm, I'm someone who, in a sense, would have to sign off on a project and we have money to fix an arterial or to invest in an arterial, my standard approach is to give that money to the engineering department or the public works department or the some engineering function, have them do the design, and then allow my planner and my maintenance people and my housing people and my economic development people and my parks planner and everybody else to comment on that. 
And then the engineer can respond to those comments. And that's the process that we're comfortable with. If I'm that local leader and I'm saying, I'm not getting good outcome from that process, how should that process change? What should I be asking for? What should I be doing? Who should I be empowering uh, to, in a sense, lead that lead that process? Should it be the engineer and everyone else comments? Or is there something else that may work yeah. better? I would involve planners from the very first stage of planning for the process. Um, I don't say necessarily leading the process, but just be part of that. And I would come with this question that, what do I want the identity of that street to be? Do I want that to be a convenient place for fast driving? Do I want that to be multimodal? Do I want to see lots of pedestrian and cyclists on the streets? What really I do want to see? And what do I want to see going on on each side of the streets, like in terms of land uses? Do I want to see shops, coffee shops? Do I want to see parking? Really, what context? Again, think about context first. And when I have the context, which is something uh, will come out of a team of planners and engineers together, then again, I will have both of them in the same team coming out with, you know, with a more actionable plan on what we need to do to implement that context in terms of design elements, in terms of land use elements, even pedestrian amenities or what's going on on uh, sidewalks, not necessarily only on the streets, a collaboration, a team of planners and engineers. Because again, Chuck, if these two words, even though both of them are looking at transportation challenges and issues, they see that very differently. And each of them yes. brings a different perspective to the team. And, and that will add value to the overall outcome uh, of what would come out of that uh, that process. I always laughed because when I'm with engineers, they tell jokes about planners. And when I'm with planners, they tell jokes about engineers, and they're actually both very funny because they get at something real, right? I mean, these are very different pursuits in a way. So true. So true. Yeah. <laughs> One of the, I think, beautiful things about your work here is that not only have you identified a way to make transportation safer in these very dangerous, you know, high, high incident kind of arterial corridors, but you actually point to some additional side benefits of doing this, you know, creating more space for people biking and walking, adding more, you know, more investment, this kind of thing. If you're a local leader, you're a decision maker, and I'm reading this report and I'm saying, okay, great, we can make streets safer, but what is the added benefit? It feels like there's added benefits that I can sell to my constituency and my staff and my departments and, and all of that beyond even safety, right? There's a, there's a lot of bonus stuff here. Oh, for sure. For sure. This is the most cost-effective uh, way to add bike lane or sidewalks. Mm -hmm. In many cases, that's the only choice that transportation departments have to add a bike lane or, or, or sidewalk. And so it's way cheaper than any other alternative to just look at the change on the configuration of streets other than, you know, looking at changing the setback or, you know, other ways that you can add a bike lane. It adds value. Research shows that it adds value to the businesses surrounding the area. 
it uh, increases their sales volume. It adds real estate values to the housing uh, market and, and real estate market. Um, several studies are pointing into that. It comes with a number of environmental benefits, you know, less impervious surface, less heating from, from the ground, and, and less uh, likelihood of uh, dealing with urban heat islands and some of the issues related to that. And public health benefits, you know, is the other benefit I would mention. If you if your street is safe for pedestrian and cyclists, you are going to see more uh, physical activity, less chances of obesity uh, and other chronic diseases. And you will see streets more lively and active, again, good for residents, good for businesses, and uh, is probably the, the most cost-efficient ways uh, municipalities and, and state departments can make changes that benefits the community. I want everybody listening to just back up two minutes and listen to that again. What you just said, okay, we can make streets safer. And, and you had this like long, long list of amazing things that everybody's trying to achieve. How much does this just kind of reinforce the notion that excessively wide streets are a real public health problem? I mean, I, I feel like you're your report is brilliant in saying that it's one of these things where I, I say we can't repeat that thing enough. This is a real public health urgency, isn't it? It is. I would say that the multi-asset, uh, multi-dimensional public health benefits to, to narrowing lanes, again, if you look at the rates of obesity and chronic diseases in the U.S., one of the leading cause of deaths way higher than other countries. How we can have more walking well by making our streets more walkable, how we can do that or, or bikeable, how we can do that. Well, if you look at uh, really the, <laughs> the level of walkability or bikeability of our streets, Chuck, it's, we would not believe that when we first looked at this study. Large cities like Dallas, a city of Dallas has only five miles of protected bike lane. Five miles is nothing for a cyclist. Nothing. nothing. Right. Like how much you nothing. can go on, on five miles. That could change to a network of bike lanes. And you just, just imagine how much that would add to the, the safety and confidence of cyclists and, and pedestrians using the streets. And in terms of safety numbers as well, I would say definitely a lot of significant benefits, public health benefits to doing so. And I just want to add one thing that... Our travel lanes are, compared to other countries, awfully wide. I was looking at, for example, European countries that, by the way, have much lower traffic safety uh, or crash and fatality rates than the U.S. counterparts. The average travel lanes and arterials for them is 8.6 feet. And for ours, the minimum is 11 to 12. There are tons of opportunities for getting a much better use out of that extra space that really doesn't add to safety. In most cases, it's a risk to safety. I would definitely say that these findings could be an introduction to a different look at what what really lane reasons, how the lane reasons safety interacts and what other are the side benefits or additional benefits that narrowing lane widths could bring to the communities. It feels like there's a revolution here that needs to take place in how we design this. And your study your research feels like maybe the catalyst we need to reach the the technical people because they want studies they want reports they want to show and a lot of this feels very intuitive to me i, I love the fact that you put the data behind it so 
Can I ask you a couple personal questions? Sure. <laughs> I feel like there's some insights you have that don't necessarily come out in the research that I, I want people to hear. I'm looking at your your resume and I see you went to Shiraz University. Is that how you would say it? It, it is, was, yes. Is that in Iran? Is that Am I understanding yes. that correct? Are you Iranian? I am. Okay, beautiful. And then you went to Malaysia for your master's degree. And then you came here to the U.S. to Utah, which is culturally like, that's a very interesting mix, Utah, for your doctorate work. You alluded a little bit to European countries being different and having different sides. What's your impression, not having started here in the United States, but now coming here as a transportation professional, what's your impression of our transportation approach, transportation profession, our, our, our results I'll say this, I'm from a small town in central Minnesota. This was all very normal to me. I grew up in like, this is how we do things. It was only when I started to travel abroad that I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so different than what I've experienced. You've had the opposite. You were other places and then came here, especially to Utah where everything is wide and crazy. Can you talk a little bit about your experience and like at what point did this not feel normal to you or... What was your intellectual journey to say, boy, we need to we need to look at something differently here? Yeah, like I remember this moment precisely when I was on the plane coming to the U.S. for the first mm-hmm. time. So I had yeah. my imagination of American cities, and New York was <laughs> what I, you know, was mostly I I, <laughs> I, I had in mind, uh, or or Los Angeles, like based on movies and looking at the social media. And I was on uh, on the plane. It was Salt Lake City close to landing. I was so surprised. I could not believe that. <laughs> that um, hmm. the contrast I would see compared to Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur or in Iran, Shiraz or Tehran are relatively very high high density cities. And my first couple of months of being in Salt Lake City, the idea for this study uh, and many of my other studies came from living in Salt Lake City, which is famous for its wide lanes and wide streets and, and level of sprawl. And it's, it's being a typical of American city, uh, you know, if we exclude some of the larger uh, cities in the U.S. And I was so curious to <laughs> to understand and to study and to see That's a what, generous, what really yeah. <laughs> a, a, a very very uh interesting um journey for me and i was so lucky because at the university of utah i got the chance to work with uh dr reed ewing you might know him i do yes and i think he's on the top three list of most cited scholars in transportation planning and we did a lot of projects together. Like we would work on seven, eight, nine uh, transportation projects simultaneously together. And that was an eye-opening for me to really look at what is the context of transportation planning um, and, and land use planning in the U.S. What are you know, some of the reasons that we see these patterns and what are some of the consequences. And really those consequences is what brought me to public health. Because I think public health is the most immediate consequence of all of this. You know, if you look at safety consequences, obesity, chronic diseases, um, mental health, and many other indicators of physical health, 
they all are the results of these transportation planning and um, and, and engineering uh, process that we have, we have and we see in the U.S. I'm going to give out the website, but I'll let people know that it's going to be in the uh, the notes for the show, so you can go there. It's a little narrowlanes.americanhealth.jhu.edu has the study. The study is called Narrow Lanes Save Lives, A Way to Make Our Communities Safer and Healthier. There is a short version. There is a long technical version. I'm going to recommend that everybody who has an interest in this, go get this report, give it to your council members, give it to your city engineer, give it to your county engineer. Let's start a conversation. And I I feel like the conversation is not one of you're wrong, but one of let's empower technical professionals to use their discretion more, right? I mean, we're, we're actually trying to give engineers more tools. Would you say that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. I think at the end of the process, again, it's about safety. And I, I'm, I'm sure the number one priority of transportation engineers is safety. So, so definitely. Absolutely. I agree. Shima, I can call you Shima, right? Absolutely, for sure. Dr. Hamidi, it is very kind of you to take the time to to chat with us today. If people want to reach out to you, want to talk to you themselves, I'm sure you're very busy, but is there a a best place to follow you? I know you're on Twitter, but it looks like you maybe haven't been for a while. Is is there a good place to keep up to date with what you're doing? I've been active on Twitter, but more recently, I... I often use uh, LinkedIn, uh, so sure. checking my LinkedIn profile, which is just my name, I would try to share more stuff uh, on, on our, our research and findings and, and other interesting stuff. So happy to be in touch. Wonderful. Thanks for taking the time and being so generous with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for <laughs> your interest in the study, and it was great talking with you, Shah. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.